Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today we are looking at the life and career of billionaire, investor and philanthropist George Soros. And to help us, I'm delighted to say that we have a special guest. Sebastian Malaby is a journalist, author, a senior fellow for international economics at the, at the Council on Foreign Relations and a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. His work includes... After Apartheid, The Future of South Africa, The World's Banker, A Story of Failed States, More Money Than God, Hedge Funds and the Making of a New Elite, and The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Sebastian, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Simon. Uh, Before we dive into George Soros, uh, Sebastian, I was hoping you could maybe introduce the concept and history of hedge funds to our audience. So what is a hedge fund and how does it work? And uh, then we can kind of go into the the history of it after that. So a hedge fund is sometimes um, jokingly referred to as a compensation strategy more than an investment strategy. Um, The first distinctive thing about a hedge fund is that uh, the way the manager gets paid is that normally there's a fixed um, sort of fee, which is extracted as a percentage of all the assets being managed, um, normally 2%. And then on top of that, a 20% profit share in any profits that are made. So the structure is you have a general partner who is the investor um, and then limited partners who are the outside uh, backers who just supply the capital. And you have that split of two and 20 with the uh, active manager pocketing those fees. And um, there are some implications to that. Uh, One is that because you're getting 20% of the upside as the manager, you really have a huge incentive to go off and uh, discover clever trades. Uh, In contrast, if you're managing a normal unit trust or mutual fund, as it's called in America, um, you basically just get the fixed uh, fee on the total assets, as opposed to the incentive uh, for performing well. And so there are extremely strong asset, uh, strong incentives in hedge funds to go and um, do the research. Uh, the other thing is that hedge funds um, are defined by the practice, uh, not quite a rule, but the sort of convention that the active managing partner puts uh, his or her own capital into the fund. And that balance balances the incentives even better because there is the incentive to go off and take risk because you're getting 20% of the upside. But there's also an incentive not to be crazy about that because you've got your own capital in the fund and you're going to lose it if you go too crazy. Um, and then I just had a couple of other things uh, which define hedge funds. One is that they're allowed to borrow money. Um, right. That's called leverage. Uh, so you can Um, double up your bets by using borrowed money. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last thing is that you can go long or short. In other words, bet on stocks going up or bet on them going down. And and that freedom, um, when you combine the leverage with the ability to bet both ways in markets, uh, you liberate a lot of strategies that, that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Can you tell us a little bit about the the history of sort of hedge fund investment and how that that came about? Yeah, ironically, um, (laughs) the first, um, uh, what I regard as the first hedge fund manager is a character called Alfred Winslow Jones, who set up a fund in 1949, kind of under the radar, um, managed it pretty much in secret for uh, about a dozen years or so. And then only in the 60s, uh, when his performance was so good that it couldn't be kept secret anymore, um, did words start to leak out. And there was a crucial point in the mid 60s when um, one of the financial magazines in the US published um, a a sort of expose of uh, Alfred uh, Jones's methods. Um, and, And that created a sort of boom in imitation. So you had a a first hedge fund boom in the 60s, uh, when the market turned around and crashed uh, in the early 70s, 
with the oil shock, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the hedge funds got blown up and, and went away. And people kind of forgot about the sector uh, for a decade or so. And then it came roaring back in the bull market of the 1980s. And how were hedge funds uh, sort of a front to the traditional efficient market theories that economists were um, coming up with at, at this time? And, and why did academia very much not think that hedge funds um, were valuable or could make the money that they, they were making? Well, you're quite right that, um, uh, you know, the efficient market hypothesis uh, came to dominate academic finance uh, in the 50s and 60s, which is exactly when Alfred Winslow Jones was uh, starting out. Um, and the thesis in, in academic finance was that um, information uh, gets incorporated into asset prices just about immediately. So if there's a new data release on how the economy is doing, or if a certain company announces a new invention that's going to push its profits up, or whatever it is, this new information will move the price of assets, um, but it'll happen so quickly that uh, it's almost impossible to make a living by speculating in stocks uh, or in bonds or in any other assets. And hedge funds that exist precisely to make a living by speculating uh, and a very good living at that, um, fly in the face of that efficient market hypothesis. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that the two things in academia and then in Wall Street practice arose at the same time. Um, what are the main criticisms of hedge funds and do, do, uh, do critics consider them particularly dangerous um, compared to maybe other investments for, for, the, for the wider economy? There has been a view that they are particularly dangerous because they do uh, borrow money. And obviously, um, you know, if I have uh, 100 pounds in my account, um, uh, but I go off and borrow another 100, um, I could, uh, you know, be down 50% because I made a stupid bet. Mm -hmm. But 50% of 200 means I've lost 100. So I've lost all of my actual money. Um, yep. So the leverage just magnifies the risk that you take. And sometimes hedge funds have pushed leverage to an extraordinary degree. They've borrowed, you know, 20 pounds for each pound of actual capital or even more than that. And there was a famous instance um, in 1998 when a hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management uh, spectacularly blew up. And it had borrowed so much money that the magnitude of its positions in markets was a large multiple of the amount of capital in the fund because it had tripled and quadrupled and, and quintupled its, its positions through borrowing. And this was so disruptive uh, when long-term capital management blew up that it became a kind of policy crisis. And um, the Federal Reserve uh, actually cut interest rates in late 1998 three times to try to stabilize markets in the wake of that shock. Now, there were other things going on as well, the Russian financial crisis and so forth. Um, but, but it was a dramatic illustration of the way that a hedge fund could destabilize the world. Mm. What's always struck me, though, um, is, is to look at it through the opposite end of the telescope and say, well, that's one instance um, in a history of hedge funds that goes back to the 60s. One instance in 60 years is actually not a lot at all. And so I've always argued that um, contrary to reputation, uh, even though they do borrow money, hedge funds are interestingly not the most dangerous part of finance. Uh, and it, 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 the reason is that they are not um, implicitly backstopped by the government and they're not backstopped by deep pocketed parent banks on the whole. And in fact, part of my definition of hedge funds is that they, they are by definition sort of independent and uh, freestanding. Uh, and, and that concentrates the mind. If you know you're not gonna be bailed out, you are a bit less, um, audacious with your risk-taking. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's why long-term capital management aside, there's been no other example 
of a hedge fund blowout that has truly threatened the stability of the financial system. In contrast, of course, in 2008, mm-hmm. you had money market funds go bust, investment banks go bust, commercial banks go bust, insurance companies go wrong. I mean, you go down the list, uh, almost any kind of financial vehicle uh, blew up, but hedge funds did not need a government bailout. They lost money, but they didn't need a bailout. So they turned out oddly to be actually the the stable part of the financial system. Do you think people who are maybe kind of outside the world of of finance maybe just kind of wrongly put hedge funds in with everybody else and just say, oh, you know, hedge funds were a part of this, you know, government bailout and, you know, they they were also getting money back for helping destroy the economy. Do do you think there's maybe a, a lack of, like understanding of, of maybe the difference between the, the different type of investments and maybe that's maybe colors some of the uh, negativity towards um, hedge funds in the sort of the public eye. And do you think it's just part of that, part of the reason why they're not so risky, even though they're leveraging, you know, like five to one uh, or, or even 15 to one, do you think part of the reason that they aren't so risky is, is because of their size and because the, the government isn't uh, supporting them? Yeah, I mean, uh, to take the second question first, I mean, I think the reason why, despite leverage, hedge funds are not so risky is is twofold. One is this point that, you know, if you're not going to be bailed out, you're more careful. But the other thing is that when you combined um, uh, the ability to go short that I mentioned earlier, um, you can you can think, think of it like this. Take an example, right? So supposing... Um, you know, uh, I'm an investor, I'm a hedge fund investor, I think that uh, Ford Motor Company is better managed than General Motors. Mm-hmm. So I buy uh, shares in Ford, and I go short shares in General Motors. Now, what this means is that um, I'm indifferent as to whether the general stock market goes up or down, because I've got one bet in both directions. And I'm indifferent as to whether Um, Indeed, the car sector goes up or down because I have a bet in each direction. So that that hedging, as it's called, is um, hugely risk reducing. Mm -hmm. And if I take that hedged position and then I borrow a lot of money and make it bigger, although I've borrowed money, the hedging part of my strategy means that I'm probably taking less risk than somebody who doesn't borrow money, but also doesn't hedge. And in mm-hmm. fact, Alfred Winslow Jones, the, the sort of granddaddy of uh, hedge fund managers, he talked about combining speculative means for conservative ends. And so by that he meant, you know, the speculative method of, of going short. Um, mm-hmm. When combined with leverage, actually the two sort of balanced each other out. Now, the other part of your question was, um, has the broader culture got this wrong? And I think the answer is yes, it has got it wrong. And I've kind of felt this in quite a personal way in the last year or so, because um, during the uh, GameStop uh, stock stock speculation, um, there was a lot of discussion on this uh, Reddit forum, Wall Street Bets, about how hedge funds were going short and you should go and bet against that and and so on. And I wrote a piece that was sort of trying to explain that... um, you know, going short wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, That's part of price discovery in markets. If you have a corrupt uh, company where the management is not disclosing um, the true state of the accounts and a hedge fund researcher discovers that and and bets against that company, that's actually useful because it disciplines um, dishonest management. Um, So anyway, I wrote this, this piece and I said, oh, and by the way, um, the idea that hedge funds are unstable and need to be, you know, treated with caution because of the threat to financial stability. That's not true. You know, long-term capital management aside, um, there's, there's never been a case of that. Uh, and indeed, long-term capital management didn't get a government bailout. So there's been zero cases of taxpayer money uh, going to uh, finance, um, going to, to kind of rescue uh, hedge mm-hmm. funds. I got this unbelievable amount of blowback on social media and, you know, uh, some YouTube video was made, you know, denouncing me and you know, <laughs> demanding that I should be fired. And, you know, and, and, and it really showed how 
people are simply convinced that hedge funds, you know, do threaten the financial system, that they are sleazy, risky, disturbing, destabilizing. Um, and I just think that's massively exaggerated. And do you think that's simply because as sort of the, the wealth inequality has kind of grown and we, we see people getting such vast, large, you know, people worth 200 billion and people are, you know, still getting a $15 working wage or not even getting a $15 working wage. Do you think there's just a, a general feeling of there are terms being bandied around, whether it's, you know, in, in, you know, investment banking or propriety trading or hedge funds, and they're all sort of exactly the same and they're all sort of just generally bad and they're all just working against us. And there's maybe not a, an understanding of, you know, a hedge fund isn't going to get bailed out by the government. Whereas um, what we saw in 2008, uh, those companies were. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. I mean, I think that's exactly what it is. You've got this um, background factor of uh, shocking inequality in the society. In my view, that should be addressed through more progressive taxation. Mm -hmm. um, you should tax rich people, including rich hedge fund people, more. Yeah. Um, but you shouldn't say that the trading strategies are bad uh, because I actually think they, they make capital markets more efficient. There's one sort of wrinkle I, I might just mention too, which is that um, some of the time, um, you know, you do get hedge funds that are part of bigger financial companies. Um, and so a big asset manager that does all kinds of asset management, uh, such as uh, BlackRock, will mm. have a, a hedge fund department. Right. Um, and some of those bigger guys did get um, bailout money. I think in those cases, the hedge funds were sort of a marginal part of their business, um, but it, 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 it slightly blurs the argument and allows people to claim that hedge funds themselves were bailed out as opposed to their parent companies. Right. Okay. That's probably. But, but what about on this on the national level? You know that not you know the hedge funds being bailed out, but you know, countries you know they have a particular exchange rate they they want to maintain or they want to devalue their exchange rate in order to get into say the exchange rate mechanism in the nineteen nineties. Um, do you think that it's 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 not bad that that sort of private individuals in hedge funds with staff members of like 50 people can can actually force central banks and governments to not make the decisions that they want to or mm, that's a good question i mean um this is anticipating perhaps the next part of our discussion about george soros but yeah. he is the ultimate um illustration of 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 how one should think about your question so i'm going to bring him up now um you know in 1992, uh, Britain was part of the European exchange rate mechanism. And so the pound was uh, tied to the Deutschmark and other European currencies. And um, the pound was forcibly ejected from that exchange rate mechanism um, by uh, financial traders, foremost among them, George Soros and his uh, colleague, Stanley Druckenmiller. And, you know, what they did was that they simply sold so much uh, sterling that they drove the value down and the Bank of England tried to buy sterling back to, um, to fight that. But Soros was able to borrow. Uh, that's where the leverage comes in and sell more and more and more. And he plus his sort of, you know, imitators in the financial speculation world uh, overpowered the Bank of England and drove sterling out. So just as you say correctly, um, what was official UK government policy was rendered untenable by a bunch of traders in New York. Mm. And th that sounds shocking. The, the counterpart, the, the sort of the counterpoint is that um, in some sense, the pound was vulnerable to this punishment because the government's policy was causing a recession, throwing people out of work. And the pain of raising interest rates to shore up the value of the pound was excessive. Uh, and so although the UK press called this ejection of the pound 
from the European Exchange Rate Mechanism Black Wednesday. Um, Druckenmiller, Soros's colleague, called it White Wednesday. And he sort of had a point because after the pound was thrown out of the exchange rate mechanism, uh, its value could go down, then British exports recovered and uh, the UK recovery uh, ensued and um, British standard of living kind of got better. Um, now, you know, I, I think you can debate this either way, but um, there's at least a case to be made that the reason speculators go after certain currencies is because the underlying economic policies of the government are damaging their own people and speculators are sort of forcing a reckoning with reality and that can be healthy. Yeah, I, 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 that's I, really interesting. It really is. I, I don't know if this specific this specific example I'm going to give applies, but I did see some reports of um, kind of around the Brexit time about people kind of basically shorting the uh, the pound or the British economy, uh, as it were, because of um, what what they felt was 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 coming with regards to the, the economic crunch of um, of, of Britain post Brexit. Um, Shall we move on to uh, George Soros properly now, since we've we've touched on him already? Um, Sebastian, could you introduce to our audience the, the, the early days of George Soros, um, particularly his, his time in Hungary during the war, and then maybe a little bit later when he goes to London School of Economics and uh, being a, a student of, of Karl Popper? Yeah, so, um, you know, George Soros um, spent his childhood uh, in Hungary during the war under uh, Nazi occupation. And, you know, obviously as a member of a Jewish family, that was a, a harrowing experience. And he and his father um, uh, and his brother would go off and um, conduct various sort of clever black market trades to kind of keep body and soul together. And so sort of the idea of risk and the idea also just of the instability of society, of the, the fragility of society and of order um, was instilled into him at a young age. Um, he made his way as a teenager to Britain and um, uh, got into the London School of Economics. And it was sort of a melting pot of um, people from around Europe. And uh, the, the, the professor who captured Soros's imagination was, as you say, Karl Popper. And it was particularly um, Popper's emphasis on the limits to human cognition that mattered to Soros. In other words, uh, the human mind can, um, you know, is a wonderful thing, but, but it, it won't perceive reality with absolute precision. There's always going to be an error in how people process the world around them. And of course, you could view that as a sort of early anticipation of all the behavioral science that came from the 1970s onward um, with Kahneman and, and Tversky and, uh, and all that research. Um, but in the 50s, uh, Popper was already arguing about sort of flawed perceptions. Um, and for Soros, that was politically attractive because of course it, it suggested that um, political systems that claim to be certain about the best way of ordering the world, whether it was Nazism or communism or other totalitarianism, that, that claim to total knowledge was uh, fraudulent. And so there was a political attraction, um, but as, I um, mean, just to jump ahead a little bit, as, as, as Soros processed that idea of imperfect cognition, it, it turned out later to matter a huge amount to his uh, hedge fund trading because it allowed him to dismiss the idea of the efficient market hypothesis uh, that we mentioned earlier. You know, if in, 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 in the efficient market hypothesis, the key actor in a financial market is the rational investor who rationally sees that new information has emerged and immediately incorporates that into the price uh, of an asset in the market. Now, if you're schooled by Karl Popper and you're taught to doubt that 
perfect rationality even exists, then you are schooled to dismiss um, the efficient market hypothesis. And, and, and I think that's one of the keys to Soros's success as a hedge fund speculator. And, and do you think that um, because Soros sort of uh, thinks about this or thinks this through through a, a reflexive hy hypothesis, do, do you think that that the, what Soros came up with was an, a, a genuine academic challenge to the efficient market hypothesis? And, and, and as you said before, do you think he anticipated um, the, the Carmen and Tversky sort of going from a efficient market and um, way of thinking about rational actors acting in the market to thinking about imperfect knowledge and, and um, you know, it's almost like um, people using heuristics in the market as opposed to uh, rational agents. Do, do you think, do you think um, Soros is actually the one who, who came up with that in that time? As, as, as it, um, in, in terms of finance, do you think that, that Soros is the person that you can pinpoint as the, as the person who, who came up with that theory in, in the financial world? Uh, so um, not quite is the main answer, um, but there is one thing where I think Soros was really distinctive. So let me explain. Um, I think all of the people who were involved in, you know, making their living from speculation and markets, and that was not merely hedge fund people, but all kinds of investors, they were implicitly rejecting the efficient market hypothesis. They were saying uh, prices are not efficient and it's through their inefficiencies that I, as a speculator, can go out and you know, put money behind my conviction about where something is mispriced and I'll be right more often than I'm wrong and I'll make money. So you know, there were other hedge fund speculators such as Michael Steinhardt who in chronological terms was pretty much parallel to Soros, um, you know, started in the late 60s with a hedge fund and, and traded through the 70s and 80s. Um, there was an outfit called Commodities Corporation based in Princeton, uh, which was extremely successful in the 70s, uh, again, speculating on commodities. Uh, so there were various um, speculators who were implicitly rejecting uh, the efficient market hypothesis. And in a way, Commodities Corporation is the most interesting and amusing of them all because uh, Paul Samuelson, the um, MIT economist, who was very much a proponent of the efficient market hypothesis, uh, actually put his own money <laughs> into Commodities Corporation to be managed. So with his public pronouncements, he was espousing uh, the efficient market hypothesis, and with his private money allocation, he was uh, taking the other side of the argument. Um, and um, uh, after my book on hedge funds was published, uh, Larry Summers, the US economist, uh, told me a funny story about this because his, uh, you know, I think um, Paul Samuelson was his uncle. Uh, wow. he, came, he came from a family of economists. Uh, and um, uh, one time, you know, Uncle Samuelson, Uncle Paul, came over and said that he was involved in this uh, speculation on commodities and that, you know, cocoa uh, was going to do well. Um, and so uh, Larry Summers' parents uh, bought some cocoa futures. And sure enough, it did very well and they made some money and they were able to build a new uh, addition, an extension to their house, which they thereafter term the cocoa wing. Um, so so uh, I, I always think of Samuelson as being uh, the most amusing crossover between what the efficient market hypothesis was saying in academia and what people were actually doing in practice. Uh, but, but to go back to Soros, I think what his, his distinctive contribution was not just to see that the efficient market hypothesis was, was you know, inadequate, it was to take a further step and say, okay, um, because these limits to cognition are pervasive, as Karl Popper taught me at the London School of Economics, um, that's going to create a, um, a self-fulfilling uh, sort of feedback loop where 
um, let's say, uh, you know, shares in a particular company um, are wrongly perceived by a big investor to be uh, undervalued. So the big investor comes along and buys them. And then um, other investors uh, will get excited by the fact that the share is going up and they also have fraud perceptions. So they may buy it too. And then the company in question, because its share price has gone up, will be able to, and this is the key part, will be able to raise capital more cheaply because its share price is overvalued. It can now issue more shares and, and, and get a lot of capital at a cheap rate because of that inflated share price. And so the flawed perception actually changes the reality of how competitive the company is. Um, and then that kind of vindicates the full perception and you get additional investments flowing on the back of that, which then causes the cost of capital to go down even further. And this, this loop starts to, uh, kind of flywheel starts to, to spin. And so Soros, what he saw was not merely the first step of the analysis where you say, okay, uh, people have got full perception and so they've mistakenly bid the price of something up. Uh, you know, most investors would say, hey, it's been overbid, it's gone up too much. So maybe now is the time to sell it um, because it's got to come down to reality. Soros was cleverer than that. And he said, no, wait a second. It's, it's overvalued. That's going to set in motion this flywheel where that becomes a reflexive feedback loop. It will become more overvalued. So rather than selling it and expecting it to come down to reality with a bump, I'm going to buy it and bet that this bubble continues to inflate. And only when it's inflated for quite a while and the system has gone far from equilibrium, only then will I start to sell and uh, profit from the uh, backswing where it comes down to reality. So he, he, I think his insight was not just to see that um, perceptions are flawed, it's that flawed perceptions can be self-reinforcing and that process can carry on until you get to a far from equilibrium situation. Wow. And do you think that, that Soros actually, because he seems to have been a genius, you know, at, at this, do you, do you think that Soros really wanted to be a financer? Or do you think he wanted to be an intellectual like Karl Popper? Because you can see like he went to LSE, he got kind of average grades he works some menial jobs before he got into finance did you think that that Soros wanted to be involved in finance or is it like um like Alfred Jones at the beginning he was someone who was who was an intellectual a little bit of a dilettante but was just good at being finance yeah I mean I think Soros's first wish was to be recognized as a philosopher and that remains the case um you know, in the course of writing the book and indeed in a later project, um, I, I've talked to quite a bit to Soros and, and I've read a lot of his, you know, extensive <laughs> self-published memoir type of literature. And, it, you know, a good tell here is that, you know, he went into finance in the late 50s. He moved to New York. He started to do very well. Um, but through a series of financial jobs before he opened his hedge fund, in the late 60s. Um, he was always spending his weekends uh, writing his philosophical tracts and extending his theory of reflexivity. And he would come back to that later in his life. You know, he would, you know, writing would always be um, sort of the second strand of his, of his endeavors alongside investing. And although he was a genius at investing, and not really quite so much of a genius as a philosopher, I do think that the philosophy or the philosophical endeavors um, explain why the investing was so successful. Uh, one question I, well, I was going to ask you to maybe introduce a little bit more of the, the Soros Fund Management, which was, uh, I believe, uh, established in 1970 and had a couple of name changes, uh, ultimately becoming the, the Quantum Fund, uh, sort of late 70s. You, you mentioned in the book that I think by 1980, he kind of, this was becoming successful and he had had, I think, 100% profits. And then a couple of years later or a year later, he, he'd had some sort of, there'd been some downfall with regards to the uh, 
tumbling of 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 the money that he had available after I'm guessing some poor investments. You then mention in the book that he sort of comes back in 1984 and sort of I don't know if reinvents himself is quite the right way, but he he kind of has has a second birth of this. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about Soros fund management and then the kind of the change in Soros kind of throughout the sort of the the 70s through through to the 80s. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just quickly worth noting, you know, I mean, all financiers, if they're going to be successful over a long stretch of time, need to reinvent themselves because Mm -hmm. either um, competitors are going to figure out their tricks um, because, you know, you're you're a hedge fund manager, you hire three people to work for you, you know, one of them leaves to join a rival, the other one leaves to set up Mm -hmm. uh, a rival shop you know, and, 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 and stuff leaks out. So once that happens, your um, secrets are out and you, you, your profits will be competed away. And also just the, the outside world will change. Um, you know, Soros began his financial career in the 50s at a time when there were capital controls and you couldn't move money across borders. And in fact, interest rates were regulated and the world was utterly different to what it became later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he initially made money by kind of getting around all those controls on finance. And then he later made money kind of from exploiting the instabilities that arose from the removal of all those controls. So you constantly had to adapt. And I think what happened most importantly in the, in the period that you're talking about, the 70s and then the, into the 80s, the big, big change was that currency markets really came of age. Mm. Um, you know, the world's um, exchange rates were pretty much fixed until the dollar abandoned the gold standard in 1971 in the Nixon shock. Um, And even in the period after that, you know, the first assumption when the dollar was devalued was that this was, you know, a temporary shock and that the dollar would go back onto a gold peg um, after an adjustment. And so in 1973, there was an attempt to replace, you know, a new, to, to repeg um, the dollar to gold. And it was only in the late 70s that, that people kind of really uh, became resigned to the idea that gold was no longer going to play a, a role in, in the monetary system and currencies were going to uh, float up and down against each other um, and sometimes, you know, move dramatically against each other. Mm. And um, bit by bit, uh, financial traders sort of started to figure out how you could make money from that. And it wasn't you know, something that they understood immediately, but it was really kind of the late seventies when this um, company I mentioned, Commodities Corporation, uh, began to make a lot of money from that. And then traders like uh, Bruce Kavanagh, who started Caxton Associates, uh, came out of Commodities Corporation and continued to make a lot of money from currency speculation. And Soros, in the meantime, um, who in the 70s had made money by trading things like uh, conglomerates and defense stocks uh, and real estate investment trusts, um, by the uh, 80s, he was joining this uh, currency trading um, forum. And his big, big thing came with the Plaza Accord in 1985, when the dollar, having been extremely strong in the early 1980s, uh, was um, devalued through this agreement between the the Germans, the Japanese, and and the Americans where there was a meeting at the Plaza Hotel in New York and everybody agreed that the dollar was uh, unhealthily overvalued and that it should go down. And Soros had sort of anticipated that big realignment and had um, placed the right bets to profit from it. And then because he believed in this idea of far from equilibrium moves in financial markets, once the Plaza Accord was announced and the dollar started to correct, instead of saying, thank you very much, I'll take some profits and he closing out his position. To the contrary, he added to those positions and he had the guts to you know, 
become even more bearish on the dollar, more convinced that it would fall in value. And sure enough, that paid off and the dollar uh, fell wildly and he profited wildly as a result. And that I think was the moment when Soros went from a very rich but rather private man mm-hmm. to a public figure. That's interesting because I was actually just going to ask you that, that specific question. At what point do we, you know, do we move away from just being, you know, a, a wealthy in, investor to being a, a public figure? And you kind of already answered the question. I know by the '90s, as you already mentioned, you have Black Wednesday, and then you have the Asian financial crisis of, of '97. So, are are we looking at this kind of late '80s, '90s period as him basically coming on the scene as this global figure almost? Yeah, that's right. And of course, it 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 was a gradual progression. But um, I think the 1985 Plaza Accord um, profits mm-hmm. put him on the cover of, uh, you know, US financial magazines, and he became known as the world's greatest money manager. And, right. you know, you I think you also have to put this in the context of globalization, right? So mm-hmm. um, Soros, having grown up in Hungary, being fluent in French and German, having worked in the London capital markets, and then moved to New York, his part of his differentiating skill was that he always thought globally long before the idea of globalization was, Mm. you know, in the lexicon. Uh, And as currency markets became a forum for speculative profits, he was naturally poised to do well, just because he, he could go to Switzerland and speak to the central bankers there. And he could go to Germany and France and, and speak to people there. And he just had a, a network, um, including actually in Italy, where uh, his initial setting up of a hedge fund in the late 60s, uh, something like half the money came from an Italian broker. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So he had this global um, web of contacts and he became known in the 1980s as sort of this, you know, multilingual um, globetrotting financier at a time when many New York money managers, you know, would have had trouble showing you where Switzerland was on the map. Um, and then that, that reputation progressed. He published uh, his first book, The Alchemy of Finance in 1987, and that made a big splash, at least amongst money managers and others uh, would read it and copy it uh, and learn from it. And um, as you say, in the 1990s, when uh, the Black Wednesday um, crash of the sterling out of the exchange rate mechanism took place and Soros was revealed to be the person behind it. Uh, that really turned him into a household name and he became the man who broke the Bank of England yeah. uh, and, and a bit of a popular villain. Do, do you think that Soros, as you know, distinguished from, say, Alfred Winslow Jones and Steinhardt, do you think because he saw himself as a philosopher, he really wanted to have this sort of global reach that he, he thought, you know, I'm going to go to Germany and see what the German finance minister is saying and talk to the German finance minister, anticipate what he's thinking about. And then I'm going to change the whole world in a way where people like Alfred Winslow Jones were private individuals. And even Steinhardt was anticipating um, he was anticipating changes in government policy, but he wasn't trying to, you know, force anything on on the world. He was just trying to make money, you know. Yeah, I mean, Soros um, was a distinctive character, partly I think because of this intellectual bent, but also because more because of his his globalized upbringing, right? The sort of you know, Hungary to London to New York trajectory and. Because he had this, um, you know, natural advantage in in cross-border trading, he tended to be hired by firms that were full of immigrants and that kind of extended his global connections. I mean, he was one of his great early coups in the 60s was actually Swedish equities. (laughs) So (laughs) it just gives you a sense of how eclectic his his global reach was. Um, I... He then became actually rather um, conflicted about this point that you just raised, making, you know, the the fact that his trading actually changed the world, actually changed what government economic policy could be, um, caused him um, upset. And he wasn't always sure that was a good thing. 
And this emerged very much in the Asian financial crisis where he was very torn about uh, the effect that his trading had on the stability of Asian economies. Shall we move on to the, the politics side of this? Because mm. I think for some people, Soros is just a name that gets bandied about if they pay attention to American politics without often knowing too much about it other than there's just this name. Um, from what I've read, it was really from the 21st century onwards that Soros kind of started making a name for himself. And I think he started having some donations um, in the 2004 election in order to defeat uh, George W. Bush. Um, can you tell us a little bit about his his move into to politics and um, how, how we start to get this other side of the Soros figure who is not just this great investor, but suddenly this this figure for um, taking on the right and becoming the, the boogeyman of, of the right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the path to that 2004 moment when he uh, weighed in on the Democratic side in the US election, mm -hmm. the path was, um, you know, his philanthropic or you might say political efforts mm -hmm. uh, in Eastern Europe, because he, you know, as a Hungarian had enormous emotional um, stakes in the collapse of communism. Of course, he was anti-communist, anti-totalitarian, um, and very excited by the prospect of an open society in, in Eastern Europe. And um, he set up this philanthropy, which he called the Open Society Institute, to channel a lot of money um, into sort of supporting think tanks and universities and uh, you know human rights projects and anything that sort of would foster pluralism mm -hmm. so, so sort of centers of, of independent thinking and critical opinion that would offset government power um, and he he poured a lot of money into that uh, in the um, you know, from, from actually almost, I think, before the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, right. but certainly much ramped up after um, the Berlin Wall came down. Yeah. And so he was sort of involved in the political uh, sphere in that sense. And then intellectually, by the end of the 90s and the Asian financial crisis in 97, 98, uh, which then, of course, spread to Russia in 98, um, he was involved as a sort of writer, as a public intellectual. He would, he would write pieces, write books, give interviews about um, what was to be done about the economic instability in emerging markets. Um, so he was sort of oddly a speculator who decried speculation because he thought it, it, it could be a wrecking ball uh, destroying um, mm. government policies. So all of that was the background to then getting involved in um, both philanthropy and public policy and ultimately politics in the United States. I remember in the early 2000s, before he uh, weighed into the 2004 election cycle, um, you know, he was involved in causes like um, the decriminalization of drugs. He thought the war on drugs was counterproductive. And mm. so he, he wanted to promote programs to um, get people off heroin by... Um, giving them methadone treatment, and he wanted prison reform, as I recall. He had a, he had a, a sort of series of, um, you know, broadly liberal, uh, but mm -hmm. but not specifically political uh, policy interventions. Um, uh, and um, then came two thousand four, and I think what drove him there was, you know, his opposition to the Iraq War, his sense that. Um, you know, George W. Bush was uh, pushing the United States in a kind of hubristic, imperialistic direction. Mm -hmm. um, and um, he also cared about uh, inequality. And, um, and for all these reasons, he, he opposed uh, George W. Bush and contributed money through an effort to defeat him. Of course, it didn't work. Bush yeah. got elected. Um, 
so so after that we we start to see soros becoming a figure in the media and you have you know whether it be politicians or um you know right-wing talking heads um throughout the kind of you know next few years and it's kind of only ramped up in in the recent years soros becomes this figure that is not just you know he's not just part of the left he's almost some sort of separate entity which is kind of hovering over the left and pulling strings and we see attacks on you know the fact that he's he's this uber rich person but also we see these unbelievable and often ghastly false accusations made against george soros you know i think i think one of them was a an accusation which was included being repeated by donald trump that he was a a nazi collaborator who, who turned in other other jews and stole their property and that kind of stuff you know re- really ghastly stuff i was wondering if you can maybe just summarize a little bit about that kind of action you know by, by the right towards soros and how you think it's um kind of impacted the public perception of George Soros? Well, I mean, I think it's as you described that there was this, you know, increasing demonization of him, um, often involving completely invented stories. I mean, there's a strong anti-Semitic mm-hmm. element, I think, here. Yeah. Um, I was actually going to ask a later question. Do you, do you think anti-Semitism has played a, a, a large role in the conspiracy theories? I do. I mean, I think it's just unmistakable when you start sort of painting somebody as, you know, a cosmopolitan, globalized sort of finance person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stereotype is is hard to miss, and um, the kind of shadowy control that he is alleged to okay. exert over, um, you know, the government and all that. It's it's sort of it's the old trope, right? Of the of the Rothschilds controlling yeah. everything or, or, or whatever. Um, I mean, why does it happen? I mean, I think it's a combination of the fact that, you know, there is truth to the idea that Soros before this backlash was this larger than knife figure, you know, his friends and supporters would jokingly say he's the only individual to have his own foreign policy. <laughs> and when you stand out to that extent, I mean, you are attracting, you are painting a target on your back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, you know, I think the zeitgeist obviously has um, embraced conspiracy theories and fake news of all yes. kinds in the last 10 years or so. And the rise of social media has a lot to do with that. And so whether it's Bill Gates who gets accused of, you know, implanting chips in people through vaccines or whatever the crazy story is, you know, uh, what Soros faces is of a piece with that. Um, I think in a way, the most tragic example of all this is what's happened in his native Hungary where, Mm. you know, Viktor Orban, um, the uh, leader of Hungary, the sort of populist strongman, Um, was, as a young man, uh, funded by a Soros scholarship to go and study abroad and now has turned on Soros, uh, you know, attacking him as sort of, uh, you know, the root of cosmopolitan globalized evil Mm. uh, and made life so difficult for the Soros-backed Central European University um, that they had to, you know, the, the, the university had to withdraw from Hungary uh, and, and move elsewhere. So, I mean, you know, when you have a philanthropist who's given back a lot to his native country and then the country sort of turns on him and kicks him out um, for, for the terrible crime of having financed a university and lots of scholarships. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of feel with Soros that, you know, he both road globalization on the way up when it was the dominant force that shaped the world um, and then also suffered the backlash against globalization when populists and nationalists turned against it yeah um 
I don't know if I, I was going to close off the, the Soros conversation by asking it kind of about legacy, Toby. I don't know if you have any other questions to follow up on Soros before I do. Oh, no, no. No. Okay. Um, so I was going to ask, what do you think the, the legacy of George Soros is, both in terms of his impact on like, investments and financial markets and the sort of George Soros, his impact on kind of politics and, and wider society? I think on the financial side, um, one of the key lessons, which we haven't really talked about yet, is mm-hmm. the idea that um, it's not just about being right when you're a financial trader. It's about weighting your conviction. Um, so there are some financial speculators, whether they're at hedge funds or, or based at banks or whatever, usually at hedge funds these days, but they will admit that they are right about the direction of the dollar or the direction of you know, the price of gold or the price of oil futures or whatever it is. They're only right sort of 50, 50%, you know, 50% of the time. But the reason they make money is that they weight the winning bets more heavily. When, you know, they, they kind of, you know, what you bet is a mixture of what your view is, but then how confident you are about that view. And the sort of distinguishing thing about Soros was that he was willing to put enormous amounts of money behind bets when he really felt a lot of conviction. And so therefore the size of his wins Mm. outweighed the size of his losses. The number of his wins might not have outweighed the number of his losses, but he made the money because of the size of those winning bets. And I think, you know, this is a point that probably only people within finance really care about. But a key to making money and a key to speculation is that weighting of bets. And I think when you talk to other hedge fund traders today, it's that it's that skill that they really admire in George Soros. Right. And do you think that skill is a is this, is an instinct? Because I know that um, many sort of physics PhDs and people like that entered the industry trying to power it through, you know, computer science and, and data and things like that. Do you think that that thing that Soros has, you know, that he was, he's with, um, he's, he's working with other, other people and, and they aren't, they don't seem to have the instinct or the anticipation or they're going in, but not going as hard as him. Do you think that's just instinct? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's instinct slash, you know, experience slash judgment. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the interesting things about Soros is that he did this, you know, extraordinary feat. I mean, at various league tables, he's been listed as the single individual who has made more money from financial single speculation than anybody ever. Uh, and that, of course, you know, who is number one in that changes from year to year. But mm-hmm. there have been a lot of years when he was he was number one. Uh, and how did he achieve that? He didn't have an algorithm. In other words, there was no repeated, math- no, no mathematical formula that you could just repeat and milk over and over and over again. Um, and, and, and so it's, it is judgment and that's kind of amazing, but it shows you that speculation isn't just about betting on repeated patterns in markets that recur. It, it, it is about the world changing that you know, something will happen out of left field and there's a global pandemic or US-China relations go wrong or, you know, some other climate change or, or, or the invention of artificial intelligence or something happens which we've just simply never seen before. And therefore, algorithms that extract patterns from the past don't predict the future. And it's that, those moments when it's not just understanding the game, it's seeing a total change in the nature of the game, that human judgment is crucial. Uh, And I think that's where Soros um, really made his money. And do you think a Soros type who kind of came along now rather than than the 40s and 50s, do you think they would continue to have that level of success if they had the sort of instincts and abilities that Soros had in a world that does move more and more towards automation and a world that moves towards technology driving things forward? As you say, if an algorithm is based on extracting what's happened in the past, it doesn't necessarily going to predict the, the next jump in the future. Do, do, do you think a Soros-type figure will be able, would be able to have 
or will be able to have that kind of similar level of success or is that kind of an unknown because we, we don't know what the world's going to be like in, in decades to come? Sure. Well, I mean, you're a good listener and you've, you've correctly anticipated my view, which is, you know, um, algorithms extract information from the past and there are moments when the past isn't the guide to the future. So I think somebody with Soros's skill who came along today and started a career in finance would do extremely well. Now, um, one of the amusing um, sort of footnotes to this though is that Soros has told me that um, he believes his own success is non-repeatable. And I mean, I think what's, so if you define his success as coming from this sort of sense of globalization, which is another part of his special source, yeah. Um, then he's right. You know, he he did. You know, he was in this extraordinary position of because of that upbringing in Hungary and all that, and the fact that he was multilingual at a time when most people were kind of quite nationally mm. uh, circumscribed. He was poised to profit from from the opening up of global finance in a in an amazing way, and that is a non-repeatable thing. Um, but I think the broader idea that the world will change um, and it might've been globalization that was the big wave in Soros's trading lifetime from the mid seventies through, uh, you know, the early 21st century. Um, But in in the next 40 or 50 years, there'll be other big waves, whether it's the transformation of life because of, you know, biology and biotech, Mm-hmm. or whether it's artificial intelligence or, or something else. Uh, and I think people who understand those big shifts uh, will make a lot of money. And do you, do you think that Soros, as we've talk, talked about, do you think Soros's relationship to, to politics and the media is, is kind of inevitable? Because at the beginning of your book, you write that you know, J.P. Morgan it was worth $1.4 in in you know, today's dollars, but was known as Jupiter. And you have... Soros making that kind of money almost cyclically. Do you, do you think that, and you know, you say the hedge hedge funders are making more money than God? Do you think that his relationship to to popular culture comes out of the fact that he, you know, he rode the wave of globalization and almost did become a god? And then the you know the price of being a god is is possibly you know this relationship to popular culture. I do think that's right. I think that's rather well put. And uh, I mean, I, you, you sort of, you've teased out the reason for the book title, More Money Than God, <laughs> because Jupiter uh, was the nickname of J.P. Morgan. Making more money than J.P. Morgan is like making more money than Jupiter, hence the, hence the title. And I think, you know, to, to switch the metaphor a bit, uh, you know, if you're Icarus and you fly to the sun, you know, your, your wings will melt and... and <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least at least politically there'll be a uh a comeuppance yes or they'll, or they'll create multiple reddit threads about you or something yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh one, one final question i had on soros was as you kind of researched him more for, for the work you know the books you, you books you written um and as you maybe got to know him a little bit was there anything that kind of surprised you or sort of changed your mind or viewpoint on him as you began to know more about him did anything kind of change in how you saw him as you learned more about him i think one um thing he always uh, has said to me in discussions since my book came out i mean not that there have been a ton of them but you know there have been mm-hmm. four or five he has this recurring joke he always says i can only remember the future um right uh, and um I think, you know, it's in a way the joke of an old man whose memory is fading, <laughs> and he, 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 you know, he, he can't remember the past. But but uh, but it's also a serious point about the psychology of uh, of a financial trader, is that um, you mustn't be a prisoner of what you did before, right. uh, and if you are sentimentally attached to opinions that you have promulgated in the past in the way that, you know, a, a, an academic or a writer might easily be. I mean, you know, I published a book uh, and a decade later, I'm still kind of extending and defending 
what I wrote, I'm I'm less inclined to say, oh, I got that totally wrong. <laughs> I think I think Soros is, you know, amazingly willing uh, just to forget the past and only remember the future and 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 make a judgment and express an opinion based on what's going on now, unencumbered, unshackled to the past. And I think that is kind of a refreshing um, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right, I, I didn't, Toby, do you have any more questions? Um, the only other follow-up I was gonna ask was for, for Sebastian himself. So was, is there anything else on Soros you'd like to ask? No. Cool. Um, so. I, I believe from briefly speaking to Toby that you, you might be working on a top secret new book and that you can't tell us much about it, but you might be able to give us a very brief. It's not that secret. It's on Audible for pre-order. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Secrets out there. No, I believe we can't go into too much detail, at least that's what I was told, but you, you could uh, maybe give us, uh, our audience, maybe a, a, a little sneak ahead of, of what's coming for yourself. Well, sure. The... Um... The next book, which comes out at the end of January uh, 2022, is called The Power Law. And it's sort of a parallel book to my one on hedge funds. Right. Um, but instead of being about hedge funds, it's about venture capital, mostly in Silicon Valley, but also a bit in China and other places. And the idea is to, rather as with more money than God, you know, take an origin story um, in the 1950s and explain how this type of finance was invented mm. and then um, narrate the history um, and show how venture capital deepened and became more sort of both more sophisticated and more influential through the uh, following 60 or 70 years and landing uh, with the battles over unicorns like Uber and WeWork mm -hmm. and, and indeed the technology rivalry between China and the United States and, 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 and trying to shed a bit of light on why Europe is a bit of a laggard in, right. in financing technology. Because I, I really do think that um, software and technology more broadly are going to pervade everything about life that they will drive um, economic growth Mm -hmm. increasingly um, and that in a way national competition geopolitical rivalry will be decided by which country has the most innovative uh, venture capital backed um, ecosystem and so understanding how venture capital works um, and where it's going is a key to understanding not only where wealth will be created but also where prosperity will happen and where um, geopolitical power will be concentrated. Fascinating. Well, I've learned so much today and probably the most important lesson I've learned is that if you want to know the future, just see what you can um, pre-order on uh, Audible, apparently, because that's where all the, the news takes place. Uh, Toby, thank you for uh, <laughs> for uh, letting me know about that. That was uh, I'll put that down as a free order. That sounds very fascinating indeed. Um, Sebastian, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I've really enjoyed this one and it's uh, been been fantastic talking with you. You too, a pleasure to be with you. Fantastic. All right, uh, well, from, from Sebastian, from myself, Simon, and from Toby and Vaughn, uh, take care and we'll have another episode for you in the new future. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.